0: You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today's episode is part two of my discussion with Andrew Gifford, author of We All Scream, The Fall of the Giffords Ice Cream Empire. Washingtonians know Giffords Ice Cream as an iconic institution. This book sets the record straight about growing up in an eccentric, troubled family. It's a story of resilience and independence. Gifford is also the founder of the Santa Fe Writers Project. I decided to offer this discussion in two parts because Gifford's recovery from family and an illness forged his resolve as a champion for writers. Part one is archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Before returning to the interview, a quick message about real fiction programming on WERA In light of coronavirus developments, as author tours are canceled and libraries close during shutdowns, the publishing industry will be hard hit. I'm committed to interviewing authors with spring book releases. There are some amazing debut novels and works of nonfiction coming soon check out the Real Fiction website and the Facebook page for updates. Now back to today's episode, continuing our discussion with Andrew Gifford. We left off last week with Andrew explaining an early defining moment in his publishing career when someone discovered Purple Publications and began to send him money. We continue now. Anyone who starts a creative project, whether it's um, a book or really any artistic pursuit, they kind of feel like they're spinning in the wind. And this was somebody that was nowhere near the West Virginia or D.C. area. She discovered your work, valued it, and sent you money. But then a little bit later in the story, you mentioned that you were going to close down Purple Publications. And Rebecca had sent you a lot of money, and you returned the money.
1: But I should have capped it. (laughs) Uh, I've always had a weird kind of guilt-ridden relationship with money. I blame many things for that, the, the troubled family, and also Scottish blood. <laughs> so, Scottish blood. So yeah, I've, I've, in that case, this comes back to Alan, my mom's father, so so my grandfather. He was opposed to writing and publishing and even reading. He, he didn't want people to read in the house, so he was completely opposed to anything literary, and he had been just driving it into me in college, you know, this is stupid you 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 should not have anything to do with this business. You need to go and get a professional degree or something like that. I let him get in my head. So the reason I shut down the business was mainly because of him. At that point, when I came home, I was living in their house. Uh, I hadn't talked to mom since I left for college. So yeah, I shut down the company because I wanted to make my grandfather happy. And he hated the idea of writing and publishing.
0: How long of a break did you take between closing down that part of your life, that publication, and then starting up again?
1: It only lasted a few years. Okay. So that was probably about 95 or '6, And then I started the Santa Fe Writers Project in 98.
0: And then we move into something that I have been wanting to (laughs) ask you about ever since I heard about the Santa Fe Writers Project and learned that you live in... The DC area. What is the Santa Fe Writers Project?
1: Uh, We're a traditional press, so we publish a combination of fiction and creative nonfiction, pretty much whatever catches my eye. And by traditional, I mean like the publisher is the one who takes the financial risk, supports the author, brings the book out. We're globally. Distribute it through the independent publishers group. Uh, and we work with subrights as well. So we do a lot of sales into audio and translation and hopefully movies and all that soon. So that's who we are. Now, the why Santa Fe question. Mm-hmm. And, and you said you hate short answers. So I was thinking just the joke would be is where I tell you that's where I went to kill myself. And then I go
0: quiet. That would be a dramatic pause. <laughs> but you did spend some time in some New time. Mexico when you were looking into your mother's kind of yeah, life path. And so I as I finished the memoir, I thought, okay, well, there's a connection to to New Mexico here, but I couldn't quite line up yeah. the timeline of the founding of the group and and its name.
1: So, I I think it probably starts in not ninety five, and I started to suffer from trigeminal neuralgia then, which is a nerve disorder. Uh, it's in my case, it's where a vein wrapped around the nerve in my face. And these are the nerves. So, this is the trunk nerve in your face. It controls everything. You blink, you blow your nose, you twitch your lip, or something. This is that's all the trigeminal nerve. So, when you have the vein wrapped around it, everything you do is just white hot electric pain every blink of the eye every breath like today I'm. I always think this I've been cured now thanks to Ben Carson of all people and yet I rode the train today to get here and just you know I, I still think I, I still live this sort of life where I'm afraid of it if I were to ride the metro when I was suffering from this just the train coming into the tunnel I I'd, I'd black out the vibration I'd collapse. the wind as it came in. So the wind on my face, a windy day, I couldn't go outside, I wouldn't be able to leave the house, you know, if I turned over on my right side, when I was sleeping, it it would just be be like someone was trying to drill through my face. It was, uh, it was extraordinary. This went undiagnosed. So this started in 95. And it wasn't diagnosed till about 2002. And I went to, I went to probably 12 doctors, maybe more. And they did all these things. So they did dental surgeries. I had doctors tell me I was crazy. I had one doctor who who said, oh, well, it must be a sinus infection and and put me on antibiotics for 15 months and just kept saying, well, keep taking them, it'll go away. So it was terrible. And, And by 98, with no help from doctors, and I started to go and see like Chinese doctors in Chinatown who did these crazy things, like they put on this orange paste that I'd have to wear for the day that would kind of burn my face and stain my face and all this and it wouldn't keep the pain down a bit, but not much. By ninety-eight, with no one saying they knew how to help me, and with this pain almost constant, uh, you know, I couldn't work, I couldn't function, I couldn't have a relationship, I I, I couldn't I, I could barely eat, I decided I would just off myself. <laughs> so they call it they, they call it the suicide disease. Uh, so a lot of people do, because there's not much hope uh, for a cure. So I headed out to Santa Fe, where I had family. Uh, My uncle was out there, and my cousin, and there's a few others out there. And I just kind of, I was doing this sort of unintentionally, really, because at that point, I didn't know, I, I wasn't in touch with mom. Mom was still alive in 98. But and she was
0: not in New Mexico she was not in at New that Mexico. time.
1: No, she had driven through in 95. She went on this kind of cross-country tour where she was throwing cash around to, to folks. But I went out to see my uncle, really. And I think I kind of knew, I mean, I, I was planning to just walk off into the mountains and die. And this is something uh, John Krakow's book, the um, Into the Wild, about the Alaskan kid. You know, that had just come out, I think. And that kid was inspired by Nemo, who was this mysterious person who left like a suicide note in the desert and just went off and vanished. It's like Dad did, you know.
0: You weren't in Santa Fe seeking treatment. You were there just... I was there
1: to kill myself. And my uncle, sensing this... Uh, and perhaps because I didn't really want to kill myself, I sought him out as well, just sat me down and just said, you know, what do you love the most? And he he sort of pulled out of me what what do I want in life if if I were to continue living that life. And I said, Well, you know, I, I loved Purple publications. I love the idea of getting paid, of getting, you know, of writing books and getting paid for it and championing other people's books. I, I thought that was a wonderful moment in my life. And he said, Well, you can do that even if you're screwed up from the pain and all that. And if you're an invalid at home, you can still do that. You just need a computer, right?
0: So he talked
1: me off the ledge, essentially. We were sitting outside. It was November, and and you're sitting under that big New Mexico sky, and you're just kind of lo- looking up. And he's feeding me vodka, and he's telling me these are the things that you love, and if you love something, you should stay, stay alive, stay, stay alive to fight for that. And so. I did. So it's Santa Fe because that's the place that saved me.
0: The remarkable thing that you just mentioned is that you were in Santa Fe, you you came back, and then there was a a period when you were cured. And this comes up in the memoir, and I have to say I was very surprised by the doctor that you credit with curing you.
1: The final step is... uh, Uh, is the brain surgery. So the microvascular decompression, I think it's called, uh, where they go in, they they cut away a part of the skull, they weigh the brain down, they go in, and they scrape the nerves clean from behind the face. And it's a long surgery. Ben Carson uh, didn't create this, but he was one of the main pioneers for this.
0: Ben Carson was a pioneering physician in treating this condition. Yeah. He was not the one who initially diagnosed it. No. But then you were referred to him for the surgery to, to treat it, and was it was effective. Yes. It
1: worked. It worked. It was, a, I believe, an eight-hour surgery. It's about a six-month to a year recovery. And you're also being weaned off the drugs. It took about two years to get off the so drugs. So you were in
0: the hospital for a long period of you time? You know, I was
1: only in the hospital for four days. Ben Carson's an amazing
0: man. <laughs>
1: I say that around my friends and they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> but
0: that's... Well, the funny, funny thing is that he does come with some political baggage, but he was a respected, he is a respected physician. But you're the first person I have met <laughs> to have been treated by Dr. Carson. So that's remarkable. And and it was successful, so that's there's a happy ending to that phase of the story.
1: <laughs> he was so kind. It was. Uh, it's strange. I have a hard time reconciling the Ben Carson who worked on me with the Ben Carson that's in public now. This was one of the kindest doctors I've ever known. And even after, I mean, he's big and famous, right? And after the surgery, he came up to visit me in the in the hospital room when we first talked about it. He just, you know, he he talked it all out. He was patient. He gave me. Somebody came in uh, while doing the initial co- consultation. They came in in a black helicopter with security and all that. And, and there's people knocking on the door saying, oh, Dr. Carson, you know, talk to Carson. You know, so-and-so is here and all that. And, you know, Carson tells them to wait. Wow. Hang on. I'm talking to, I'm talking to I'm a talking patient. talking to my patient. And he puts off whoever this hugely famous person was to give me the time to work through all this. He was a wonderful doctor. And he cured me.
0: You finally found yourself in having a daily existence without pain. How quickly after that medical crisis and correction did you get back to the work of doing the Santa Fe Writers Project? I was
1: publishing all during this, all during the pain. Uh, and there, there were a lot of You're mistakes. Kidding. Oh no, no.
0: What do you mean mistakes?
1: Well, like there was one book uh, where where the layout was wrong, and it was d- d- double spaced and all, all of that. So the book was a mess when it first came out, and I printed fifteen hundred copies, and it just looked terrible. But I had done that from. Sick bed where I could barely focus
0: well the Santa Fe Writers Project has evolved since that time and you are an independent publisher you sell books all over the world when you're working with an author you have a contract between publisher and and author what are some of your sort of golden points to consider the author should never pay
1: uh, and this is, uh, we're, we're living in the publishing world now where I think authors are asked to pay something, if not actual cash up front, their ro- royalties are docked, or they're told you have to sell X number of pre-orders or else your book's off the table. You know, you're seeing a lot of that these days. I, I've always felt... That publishing is always about, you know, just to remove the, uh, the the kind of humanity of it. Someone has created a widget and they've patented this widget, and some corporation wants to sell this widget, and so they invest in it and pay the, the person who made the widget their due. That should be the publishing structure at all times. It's I, I believe the publisher is investing in content, uh, in art, in a widget. But that's not what happens, that. is it? It's, the, no. it's that
0: the author takes their piece of art and has to transition and go into a mode of commerce. And again, I'll re- remind everyone I'm speaking today with Andrew Gifford. He's the founder and director of the Santa Fe Writers Project, and he is the author of We All Scream The Fall of the Giffords Ice Cream Empire. When your book was released, what happened?
1: Uh, Well, it didn't do well. (laughs) So, So it came out through a small press that probably we can go ahead and call them a hybrid press. And they only wanted to print a certain number of copies, and they didn't want to do the marketing outreach that a book needs, you know, so they didn't send out galleys to to long lead folks like Pub Weekly and Kirkus and all of that. And I found out eventually that they didn't even contact local press. So here's a book about a Washington ice cream family, and they didn't go to Washingtonia, and they didn't go to the Washington Post, and they, they just... Didn't bother. I even had them say to me early on, "I should have seen all the red flags here." Where they said their goal is to just sell a certain number of books, and that certain number was between two hundred and fifty to five hundred. So they got more orders than they expected, I think. And I wasn't happy with them, and we've been fighting there towards the end. And they did a strange blog post uh, that was all about how much. how much I hate Washington and I hate people who love Giffords. And it was very aggressive, this blog post that that I thought was, you know, those aren't quite my words. So they they, they contacted me five days after the book came out and they said, we're letting the book go. And that was that.
0: And then what happened?
1: Uh, Well, it's a good thing I ran a publishing company. So I saved the book. It took me about a month. So I quickly turned things around. They were good. in in terms of giving me the files. If I had to start from scratch, I don't know if I would have bothered. Uh, But they handed over all the files and the cover and all that. So we quickly turned that around and we we dumped it back onto the market.
0: I mentioned in the introduction that Vanity Fair magazine said that it was a Southern Gothic for the DC area. That's a pretty big review. That was something that you did, not your...
1: Oh, no, no. I, every, every blurb and review it got are favors that I called in after I put the book out there. So I had to get it something because it had nothing.
0: Now, one of the other reasons that I was hoping that you would come to join the program today is that you did share a social media post about contracts and what independent publishers do. There's no, there's no template for creating a contract with authors. But what are some of the things that you are finding? Maybe they're predatory or they're, they're omissions? What should an author who's looking to publish with a small press be looking for in a contract? I think the big
1: keys with the contract is the author should look at what the publisher is asking them to pay. So there shouldn't be any any requirement to pay anything from the author side. Also look at the royalties. If you get in advance, then that's going to be against the royalties, but you've gotten a check. So you're walking away with that. That's fine. But I see a lot of contracts. So I I do a lot of contract consultation for folks. Uh, So I've seen a lot of them and I've, I've, I I know a lot of these pub publishers who do this, and they've shown me their contracts. You'll see things like 5000 will be taken out against your royalties to pay for essentially the book, printing, marketing, barcode, ISBN, stuff right. like that. That is not the author's responsibility in any way. What astounds me about that, that's my biggest problem with contracts, is when you have those sort of terms in the contract. And... And authors getting getting a pittance anyway, you know? You're not getting much in the royalties. Why would you want to give that much power and that much money to a publisher who probably, you know, a lot of these presses who do that are very low level. They don't have good distribution. They don't get the books out there. They're like the press who handle my book. Ooh, 500 sounds great, you know? And 500 copies of a book won't make you anything.
0: Well, I'm curious. What kind of stories are you hoping to find in the next few years for Santa Fe Writers Project? What do you look care. for?
1: I love everything.
0: <laughs> you so, mentioned fiction and creative nonfiction, but is there is there a genre that you yeah, you lean to? You know,
1: our catalog's all over the place. So I have memoir, I have a travelogue, I have fantasy, I have flash fiction. Uh, there's a mystery book that we have, a PI novel. You know, it's mm. a little bit of everything. We're essentially uh, where we publish uh, from a contest that we we run each year, and then we also have a slush pile. And I get something like three hundred or four hundred uh, submissions a week uh, in this slush you pile. You get four hundred submissions
0: uh-huh. per week, <laughs>
1: but you know we'll find things in this slush pile that are just amazing. And and it's it doesn't matter what it is. If I want to keep reading it, I keep reading it. And if I get to the end and I love it, I publish it, and it could be anything. So I have, uh, this also is very hard to describe to people at the convention table in 10 seconds.
0: What I have found in my very small sampling of the independent publishers is that some of them have a very niche ask. You don't do that.
1: No, and I think that's crazy. Now, that's very common. Most folks do want their little niche, you know. So it's easier to do that as a publisher. And this is something I've I've run into problems with uh, with my sales reps from from our distributor, and they'll say, you know, well, we love Santa Fe Writers Project, but we just don't know what you do. We don't know how to sell you. But I've always felt, you know, when I read books, I read anything. I could be reading some hardcore history novel one day, uh, some flighty fantasy the next, you know. I've never in my own personal reading, focused on one particular genre and I don't think people do that. Not really, you know. I, I think a lot of people are all over the place. So why can't a publisher be all over the place?
0: And as I think about where you came from, where you where you are now and where you're going, you still you still get a lot of questions about your family. Yes. And what we inherit from our families is complicated. We all have that to deal with. But How do you deal with labels that people have given to you? What is the label that you're comfortable with, or do you reject them all?
1: I don't know what label I've been given, really. I don't listen to people that closely.
0: Over the years, you've been called the heir to the Gifford dynasty, the, the, the Prince of Ice Cream, that gets back to that performance art and that nostalgia about what your family brought into Washington. And you're doing something so radically different. You really never let those labels define you. You just found your own path, and that's what you're doing. You're putting stories out into the world.
1: I have felt like I stand apart from the family for a very long time. That's why those labels don't really hit me at all. As a kid, I was barely involved in this, you know, and and I spent so trying to avoid this, trying to avoid Giffords and trying to avoid anything to do with this.
0: When you look at a story, does the ending need to have a tidy conclusion?
1: No, because I couldn't find one. So, <laughs> so I, I, I would never hold that over another author. Life can be messy. It depends on the book. Now, if it's a good fantasy, then that needs a tidy conclusion. But I, we have published a lot of other memoir, and, you know, it's, uh, I've always doubted the memoir that has a tidy conclusion.
0: Toward the end of the memoir, you do go on a search for questions. And what we realize about life and what's remarkable about this memoir or any memoir that gives us something big to think about there are there sometimes the answers do not reveal themselves. Is that something that you have come to peace with come to terms with? No
1: <laughs> very frustrating it's uh I I tried so again back to the standing apart idea. So once I started writing the memoir initially it was very hard. The more I researched these people and the more I found out about them because they were strangers to me. I didn't really know my parents. I didn't know my grandparents at all on on my dad's side. So all of this, it was like I was writing about a group of insane strangers who had always been in the other room, but hadn't been around me that much. I wanted to find answers. Why? You know, was it the money? And again, they gave away their money, and they, they all died poor, so... It wasn't the money; they didn't care about that, you know. So, was it trying to destroy the legacy? And why? Now, for Dad, perhaps that was it. I think Dad was brutally abused by his parents, uh, and I think he wanted to, even though they were in the ground. I think he wanted to kill everything they represented, everything they had built. So, I think maybe that's one motive, but. Even then, no. I mean, these in, in the end, uh, the only answer is these are crazy people and everyone who has the answers are in the ground.
0: What is unique about your situation is that there is always a next resurrection. There's always somebody mm-hmm. wanting to use the family name and maybe re- recreate it, rebrand it. So that's something that that, is, that perhaps will never go away.
1: Well, that's why the book exists, I think. I, I didn't want to write this book. You wanted to set the record book. straight. I wanted to set the record straight. Yeah, I did not want to write this book. And I and I don't care about the Remember When people in the Facebook groups. I know I'm sometimes hard on them uh, when, when I post on Facebook. But, but you know, I don't care. It's, that's beautiful. It's beautiful to have those memories. And I, I don't want to destroy that vision of Giffords, even though I, I guess I am, but I don't want to be the person who does that. I don't mind those people. I just see all of these people constantly trying to reboot it and make money from it, and it's always a scam. Like in the in the early two thousands, you have the rebooters who weren't even they they were selling Hoods ice cream, the repackaged ice cream. It's like Briars. they're selling that as Giffords at six bucks a cone. You know, so so it's not about uh, it's not about the ice cream. It's not about the product. All of these rebooters have been trying to make a buck off of people's nostalgia, which I suppose is how capitalism works, but it just seems so evil, <laughs> wrong.
0: In the book, you set the record straight. And uh, as listeners have had a chance to hear what, what you're saying, I encourage you to get this book. The title is We All Scream. The Fall of the Giffords Ice Cream Empire. So I guess the last question I have is if people want to learn more about you, some people know a lot about you or maybe think they know a lot about you, but if they want to know about what, you're working on personally or through the Santa Fe Writers Project where can they go to find this information it's
1: pretty much all the Santa Fe Writers Project really so I have this one book yeah so there's not too much personally so for Santa Fe Writers Project we're online Uh, the webpage is sfwp.com just the initials Santa Fe Writers Project sfwp.com on Twitter we're at sfwp and Facebook and Instagram we're at Santa Fe Writers Project find us we're fun to follow. <laughs> yes,
0: and you have a newsletter.
1: And we have a newsletter, yes. Uh, that's on the website, Which page. I
0: am now um, a subscriber. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for coming to the program today and telling your story. And I look forward to seeing what comes next from Santa Fe Writers Project. And everybody read the book. It's it's a, We All Scream, The Fall of the Giffords Ice Cream Empire. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia. All Real Fiction episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. A special thank you to Thomas Gerard for engineering, the devoted staff at Arlington Independent Media, and fellow producers at WERA. Please consider supporting local radio. Thanks for listening.